It's a lovely feeling coming here and seeing so many of you show up. This brings a lot of joy to my heart. Um, in a um, in in order to make something strong it needs to have a good foundation and when you're building something uh, when you're building a building oftentimes the foundations are the not very inspiring part of the project Sometimes they go in deep into the ground, particularly if the structure is going to be quite, quite elaborate. When we were, when the temple was being built at the Amravati Monastery, they poured foundations. I think they were 15 feet into the ground, and um, it's a beautiful place, the temple. But while they're doing all that kind of work, it just feels like, well, this is not very exciting. This is definitely not where the real work is, you know. And, and because the soil was in a particular clay in England that was wet, would move and it would shift, they had to do all kinds of things in order to stabilize it. So not only were the foundations 15 feet deep, but they had all kinds of specific material in order to stabilize it so it wasn't moving around. And it took a long time, you know, to dig those foundations and pour them and get all that stuff in there. And then the temple started to emerge. In a contemporary Western culture interested in meditation, most people have access through the meditation. It's like, you know, we want we want the tools. We want to make it. We want to see something of a of a result of, you know, how to get a handle on our mind body processes in order to have a little bit less suffering, a little bit less tension and stress and more sense of ease. And there's nothing wrong with that. But in a, in a traditional context, it's like what starts with is, is cultivating generosity. And in an Asian culture, it's, it's really beautiful to watch what happens. It's just, you know, moms will bring their brand new babies to the monastery, you know, from the time they're teeny tiny, tiny, a month old. And, you know, in the alms round, when the monks and the nuns come, they put their hand on the baby's hand with a spoon of rice. And, you know, so it's like, you know, one of the first things that the baby is taught is this gesture of giving, you know. And so the sense of giving and taking care is uh, in an Asian society that's built around um, the, the ones that I'm familiar with. Generosity is, a, is such a strong fabric of the culture. Um, the people know how it works and how to how to relax into that, how that operates. And, and one of the reasons why generosity is so important is because it connects us with our own goodness. So it isn't so much that the person who's receiving the gift benefits, it's just that we benefit by giving. And um, it's important to remember that. 
you know, that, that in, in an act of generosity, we have access to our own goodness. And that's one of the reasons why it's one of the foundations of what's needed to be cultivated in order to allow this practice to unfold in the temple of our mind, heart, and body to come into fruition. The second element of the foundation that needs to be uh, set in place and be clear is sila, or virtue. And, you know, I've been living in a monastery for 20 years, so I, I feel like a little bit like a dinosaur that's just come out of a cave. You know, I'm not really familiar with what is contemporary in terms of people's values or beliefs or how it goes. But, you know, when I was at university, all right, Virtue was something like, the image of virtue was like a dried up prune, you know? It was like desiccated and horrible and something that it's like anything but that, you know? (laughs) And I don't know what it's like now, but I know that that was the sense of what it was like then, you know? So when you talk about virtue as a foundation, it's like, you know? But when you look at a shrine, and a shrine that's very beautifully uh, attended to, oftentimes what you find is flowers and candles and incense. And the candles are uh, uh, representing the light of clarity, of illumination, of seeing things. And the incense is the fragrance of what happens when the mind actually comes into, into some kind of um, coherence. It's the, it's the fragrance of of unification of mind and body. And the flower is what represents virtue. You know? It's not a dried up prune. (laughs) And it's not horrible. And it's not something that you have to sweat and stress in order to get there. A flower rests in its own natural perfection and is exquisite in doing that. That is the representation of virtue. So it's like, well, that's different from what I grew up knowing virtue to be. And yet, you know, when we, I don't know what it's like for you, but when we look at that, you know, that actually virtue is resting in our own intrinsic beauty. It has a different quality to it. So what I'd like to talk about tonight is the, is the way of cultivating virtue, way of reflecting on it, and having that be one of the most powerful forms of generosity that a person can give to themselves, uh, to their families, and to the world. Um, in a monastery, it's often the case that people come for wedding blessings or baby blessings or um, things like that. And it's like one of the best ways of blessing a wedding and one of the best ways of assuring the blessings of a baby is for the parents to be willing to live by the precepts. You know, when you've got that as a kind of ground or a framework that holds um, a level of integrity as a priority, that creates the, one of the most powerful blessings under which a, a relationship, a marriage can unfold and into which a child can grow. So, you know, in the, in the Buddhist teachings, one of the things about it which I really resonate with is it's not about, you know, somebody taking an idea and pushing it on you. You know, this stuff is not rammed down your throats. 
It's a reflection. It's an opportunity to pick up things and work with them in a way which, again, that sense of body space, it maximizes that sense of, of balance, of ease and well-being. And so the precepts are not offered as a kind of commandment with this kind of, you know, judgment committee that's sitting behind the curtains that to give you spankings or gold stars if you, if you get it wrong or you get it right. It's, it's, a, it's a reflection on the way that our behavior affects our minds and bodies and the people we live with and the, and the world around us. And to begin to see that if we are interested in doing this exquisite and also very challenging work of coming to terms with what it is to be human and, and coming in a place of balance and ease with our, our bodies and our hearts and our minds, we can't miss this bit out of what our behavior is, our actions, what our integrity is, and how that affects the rest of the whole picture. So the attitude or the encouragement is to use precepts as reflections. And even though there are guidelines about what is skillful and what is not skillful, it's up to each person to figure out how that works in your own life and what that means. And so even if a person is wanting to take up the precepts as a practice, it still isn't a black and white thing of what one does and what one doesn't do. But it's a willingness to work with this as a way of reflecting on behavior in order to see the consequences of what happens when we live that way. To see our own lack of remorse and confusion and also the lack of remorse and confusion that happens in the friendships and in the people that we relate to. So it's with that as a kind of introduction I want to speak about sila and then tie it back to generosity and see where it all sits with you. So if we use the five precepts as a, as a kind of framework, as a standard or as a frame of reference, you know, the first precept is to refrain from killing we're taking the life of any living being. And hopefully that isn't too hard to manage for most people on most days. <laughs> Thinking about it is not the same. <laughs> you know, so actually killing people is probably not the level that we're operating at, you know. But when we take this to its most refined state and when we take this as an internal reflection as well it has to do with a commitment to refrain from harming anything anyone any aspect of life under any circumstances okay and so when we look in ourselves at the way that we harm ourselves by our judgments by our criticism by our devaluing ourselves, by our sabotaging our own good intentions, by our distrusting ourselves. When we take this precept as a precept, as a commitment, then what it has to do at some point is begin to mirror and reflect to ourselves the ways in which we harm ourselves. And along with mirroring that, there has got to be the intention to stop doing that 
to stop believing these ideas that we have about ourselves which are not true, they are not accurate, they are not helpful, and they are not skillful. And so, you know, the whole of the rest of the precepts can really be boiled down to the first one, you know. If we really understand what it is not to harm, on all levels, then it's really a lot simpler to, to understand why the rest of the precepts are important to, to understand and to hold, to uphold, to polish and to brighten. So, I mean, just imagine what this world would be like if, if for one day people made the commitment to stop killing other human beings, you know? And yet, you know, if we take it to its highest potential of refraining from harming anything, you know, what it would be like to live even with oneself where one was not harming anything. So we can take an intention or take an aspiration, take a commitment to uphold the precept and recognize that, you know, virtually nobody that I know was actually able to live that way, you know, because the habits and the patterns that we have are still have energy in them and operate, even though that our intention and our aspiration is not to follow that. So we can uphold something and then recognize that part of what happens when we uphold something like that is, is, is that we, we make mistakes. We follow habits. We follow thoughts that aren't skillful. And then we feel the consequences of that. But when we feel the consequence of that, there's a huge difference between feeling the cause and effect relationship between what happens when we follow something that's unskillful and the shame and the guilt of when we feel that we are a bad person for having done that. And so one of the principal tenets of understanding the right relationship of the precepts is to understand that guilt has absolutely no useful function whatsoever. The only useful function guilt serves is to serve as something that's totally useless for which we need to be absolutely vigilant about when it arises. So what we need to also learn how to do is to discern how to distill out of guilt the cause and effect relationship that gives rise to unskillful results as a result of unskillful causes and bring forward both the compassion as well as the commitment to stop doing that. The second precept has to do with refrain from stealing, taking things that don't belong. And in our society with copyright laws and all the rest of that, it's actually one of the easiest things to break because you have to actually be pretty sophisticated to you know, dot your I's and cross your T's in our media and figure out what that actually looks like. On a subtle level, on as an internal reflection, it has to do with um, refraining from taking anything which is not given. And I know for myself for decades, 
and I'm still not beyond it. You know, I can spend a day just wishing to be experiencing what I'm not experiencing. You know, wanting to have certain mind states, wanting to have certain kinds of physical experiences of ease and well-being, and that's not what is being offered. You know, and so when I take this precept as an internal reflection, it gives me a pause for for consideration when I'm I'm hungering after something which is not offered. Obviously, you know, in terms of physical, um, what what belongs to somebody, you know, physical property, um, you know, when we abide by this precept, we have a sense of creating an environment of trust. And when we don't abide by this precept, then everyone is looking behind their back to see what's going on. So when we keep this precept, then what we do is we create an atmosphere where people are supported to relax and to trust their own internal process. And we don't, we undermine that. The third precept has to do with being in right relationship with sexuality. And, you know, the classical teachings on that is to refrain from being engaged or having relationships with somebody who's already in a committed relationship, committed partnership, to refrain from being involved with somebody who's underage. And, um, and, in this whole arena, you know, there's a lot that can be said more than just what one refrains from, but what one actually needs to bring to in order that this whole area becomes part of one's practice and part of one's aspiration to awaken. And so, you know, for people who spend time in the monastery living under the eight precepts, the eight precepts is not only to engage in the right relationship with sexual activity, but to refrain from any kind of sexual activity at all. And contrary to what you might feel about that, it's not intended as a way of separating us from our own sexuality, but as a way of creating a very clear and powerful container so that one can become completely familiar with it and completely at ease with it. So the irony is, is is that some of the most liberated people that I have met in terms of their relationship with their sexuality have been people who have taken on celibacy as a practice, where they are integrating this as a whole mind-body experience. Now, it certainly is also the case that there are plenty of people who are celibate who haven't begun anywhere near, <laughs> nowhere close to touch this topic, to begin to work with it. And, you know, all kinds of things can happen. Like people can use celibacy as a, as a diversion or as a strategy for not coming to terms with issues around sexual orientation, around a gazillion things, or just the intensity and the power and the passion and the mixture and, the, you know, the kind of confusion that can come as everything gets um, awakened or alivened as... Uh, a person engages in being present with this energy in relationship with another person. So this is a rich, rich topic. It's an enormous topic. And it's been my own personal experience, as well as my own observation, that if this is not handled skillfully, if this is not attended to well, 
it really puts a cap or a ceiling on what one is capable of in terms of emotional and spiritual development. And that is true both sides of the equation, whether one's celibate or one's not celibate. It doesn't have so much to do with one's level of activity as it has to do with one's level of commitment to insight, to understanding, to clarity, and to harmlessness. And then, of course, you know, the whole other side, which is is that rather than it just being harmless, you know, actually uh, engaging in relationship with other people, just checking to see how much friendship, commitment, tenderness, affection, respect is present in order to safeguard the kind of terrain which emerges as a result of, of engaging in this kind of a way. So, you know, it's funny because... Um, Sharina was talking about, you know, how uh, she was scared about driving with me in the car coming down to Boulder, and she said, you can't, can't talk to her about sex. <laughs> what you don't know. And I think for me, the reason why this has been such an important topic is because it has been such an enormous source of suffering. And so to not understand it and feel comfortable with it, to try and ignore it or to try and avoid it or to just try and think that a particular commitment not to engaging it is going to sort I mean, it's just like that is not the answer. And also in my own experience, you know, for me, I can see that sexuality, I know this is the way it works for me and I think it may also work for other women and I don't know how it works for men. But if this sexuality is like the core of our being and our capacity to love and our capacity to give and our capacity to be creative and our capacity to feel pleasure, our capacity to care is all connected to that. And so if there's injury or wounds or um, constriction or some level of a lack of ease in this territory, it manifests in all of these other ways. It is not a small topic. (laughs) And it's not an easy one to come to terms with because the energies connected to all of this is really strong. You know? So that itself is a whole exploration. But the willingness to take up the third precept as a commitment to begin to allow this to be part of one's practice, for me, is fundamental in having ground to be able to do the work that's needed in all the other areas of one's life. And you can see what happens if we make mistakes or you know, if we are running energy that is actually not congruent or not skillful or we're not in tune with another person I mean some of the damage and the pain is catastrophic or if a person is I mean it's just you know the spectrum is enormous so it's worth understanding and coming to terms with and you know there's many different ways of picking up this conversation and seeing where there's an interest to explore So the fourth precept has to do with refraining from incorrect speech. And and that has to do with the fourth line of classics, incorrect speech has to do with uh, 
refraining from uh, speaking things which are untrue, which are divisive, which are um, coarse, or which are useless. And, you know, when we look at, you know, the kind of things that happen in a kind of common, normal day stuff, it's like, you know, (laughs) there's usually a a little bit of room for improvement. (laughs) But one of the reasons why um, speech is helpful to get a handle on is because, you know, in terms of a family or a partnership or a community, there, there are few things that are more powerful in terms of creating trust and safety and a sense of friendship and kinship than when people are committed to speaking skillfully. And there are few things that are more destructive, more dismantling of trust, more devastating to people's sense of of safety than when people are not speaking skillfully. And it can shift And because speech is often the next extension off of thought, it takes enormous commitment to be willing to work with the arising energy, again, without judgment, without blame, without constricting, but with skillfulness and with wisdom as the kind of basis. And I know, having lived in the community for many years, you know, we started, all of us started with this kind of basic assumption that if you just sat long enough, you'd be able to sort everything out. You know? And there was this kind of, you know, um, it's the party line was just shut up and watch your mind, you know. And yet what we realized is, is that no matter how much we sat on the cushion and no matter how much we tried to actually resolve things by ourselves, there was a whole layer that needed to be done interactively. That we, we actually needed to learn how to be present with each other with skillful communication in order to facilitate um, clarity and trust and clearing and resolution of stuff that we didn't have the capacity to do by ourselves. And that opens up a whole other topic, which is how does one bring those kind of skills into a community? Because they're not innate. They're absolutely not innate in our culture. And they certainly are not innate from coming into a room and sitting quietly. You know? And so there's a whole skill base that is needed to investigate and pick up and understand and begin to appreciate that this is also part of our practice. Living in relationship with each other and learning how to support and facilitate uh, ways of being with each other that really allow the heart to open and mirror for each other both one's own goodness and also when the trust gets to be sufficient and the agreement is clear enough, helping people stop patterns which are not helpful. You know, not colluding with stuff that you know does nobody any good. And yet it takes guts because in order to not collude, there has got to be enough confidence that if you hold the ground of integrity, that the other things which are also important, which is friendship and a sense of belonging, are not going to be compromised to the point where one is going to have to risk things 
that will feel overwhelming. The fifth precept has to do with refraining from drugs and drinks and things which cause carelessness, but it also, from my own experience, it has to do with addictions of every kind. So whether they're substance-related or not. I mean, I grew up as a bliss junkie. And part of the reason why I was a bliss junkie was because I found life excruciatingly painful. And so I would just try and squeeze pleasure out of whatever I could in order to avoid what was actually happening. And even though, you know, substances was not my thing, you know, there was a sense of what was just naturally happening just absolutely wasn't okay. So when there is addiction to substances, when there's an addiction to anything, any kind of a pattern, any kind of a thing, there's a kind of holding out that if you get that, that's going to be the thing that's going to do it for you. And fundamentally, that is wrong view. There is no thing, there is no person, there is no any substance or any anything that is going to do that for oneself. So as long as one is committed and invested in an addictive patterning, it is incredibly limiting how one can use this practice in order to see clearly what's actually going on in the present. And it's because of that that there's a sense of just stay away from the stuff, you know. Now, that's the attitude. But when you put that on top of, you know, putting stuff in your system that makes it impossible to see things clearly, you're adding a different component to it, which not only... It, it, it undermines one's capacity for discernment and clear seeing. So I was looking after the family camp for many years. So I was involved with the, with the family in the family program. And we would have these family camps every year. And the kids and the families and everybody would come. And, you know, they would be from teeny tiny to, well, 80 and the whole range in between. And every year the demographics would change. Sometimes we'd have five-year-olds and sometimes we'd have adolescents and sometimes we'd have seven-year-olds as a kind of majority group, you know. It was always changing. And we would use Dhamma as a theme and talk about stuff. And so we'd start with the precepts. You know? And I remember one year I came in and I had a styrofoam cup and I was talking about all the precepts. And I said, well, you know, the reason why we keep the fifth precept is because if we don't, it does this. And I took the styrofoam cup and I put some gasoline into it and it just dissolved, you know. It's like, you know, if you, if, if you are using substances in a particular way, it dissolves the container it actually makes it impossible to keep the other precepts. So there's an interest in moving in this direction because there's a need to create ground, a foundation, that will allow the temple of one's mind and heart and being to, to develop, to flourish, so that one is able to relax into the natural... Um, radiance of one's own true nature. It's not dried, pruned stuff. And yet, anytime we are going against habits that we have established, anytime we've got patterns where there's social pressure, anytime where we're interacting and things like that, 
we are rubbing against the grain of stuff that inevitably is going to bring up conflicting feelings. It is not easy. And yet, and sometimes it doesn't feel inspiring. And yet, if there isn't the willingness to actually begin to do that work, one doesn't have the ground to do everything else that's needed. So when we begin to move in that direction of thinking, well, actually, harmlessness is actually a good thing, and one can begin to see the value of taking that up as a practice, reflecting oneself on the things that one is doing which is not skillful, and beginning to create signals for oneself to stop doing that, and then to stop enacting that with other people. When one is living in that way, where one is creating a field of harmlessness internally and externally, you're creating a field that is so exquisitely beautiful It is such an enormous act of generosity to do that. Because you are creating the ground for your own flowering and you're creating the context for the people around you to also do their own work and their own flowering. And so, you know, the whole, like, relationship with this is not about um, being goody-goody. It's about knowing the deepest potential of what one is and moving in the direction to manifest that. Knowing one's power and not being afraid of it. Being willing to step into it and allow it to begin to manifest. So as an act of generosity, what is more potent than that? So I will leave this part of the conversation here. We can have a five-minute break and come back and pick up the conversation in any which way you'd like. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.